You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Let's pray. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you so much for right now, for this moment right now, this moment of prayer, this moment of literally becoming uh, uh, and, and coming before you, God, in Jesus Christ. And God, we are, asked, we are asking that you would please continue to grow us and shape us and change us into the people uh, that you want us to be. That we would become, as a result of being here today, more and more like Jesus Christ. Mold our character. Take our hearts right now. God, you see, you see where each one of us is at. You alone know. You alone know where we struggle. God, you alone know where the unbelief is in our hearts. You know our pride. You know the lusts of our hearts. You know our fears. You know it all. And so would you please meet with each one of us in a special way today. Minister to us as we need to be ministered to. The only the way that you can do, Holy Spirit. Take your word and directly apply it to our hearts, we pray. That you would get glory, God. That you would get the, the worship that you deserve from our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning, Harvest. Good morning. So good. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Praise the Lord. It's great to be together. Great to be together. Uh, I'm so excited to be here with you this morning. And if you've got your Bibles there, please go ahead and open them up to Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. If you don't have a Bible, if you could just slip your hand up, that would be so great. One of our ushers would love uh, to get a Bible in your hand uh, so you can join us in Genesis at chapter 2, verse 25. And as you're turning there to Genesis 2.25, I'd like to introduce you to three people here this morning. Here's the first person. Uh, her name is Jane. And uh, Jane can't recall a time in her life where she didn't wrestle with feelings of insecurity and sometimes feelings of worthlessness and then other times feelings of hopelessness. You see, Jane's childhood memories of her abuse are so painful that she's never really shared them with anyone. And now as a grown woman, she just can't seem to shake this sense that somehow she's not good enough. Then there's Matthew, and Matthew's a very focused young man. He seems to be good at everything. He's good at sports. He's good at school. He knows his Bible backwards and forwards. When you ask him how he's doing, you say, Michael, how are you? He's like, I'm good. I'm good. How are you? But the truth is that he's anything but good. Because sin has gripped his heart and his life, and he desperately needs help, but he's too scared to ask for it because he doesn't want anyone to see his weakness. And then there's Casey, and Casey just keeps everyone at a distance. After all, he knows who he is. He knows what he's done. He knows the sin in his past. He doesn't want anyone else to know about it, so he just kind of sees people from a distance, waves, and isolates and so what do Jane and Matthew and Casey all have in common? Well, it's this. It's shame. The experience of shame. And so what is shame? Well, in his book, Shame Interrupted, Ed Welsh describes shame this way up on the screen. This is what he says. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. Let me read that again. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did or something done to you or something associated with you, you feel exposed and humiliated. And if you are here today and you struggle at all with shame like I do, and truth be told, like all of us do, then get ready. Get ready because today the Lord is going to show us the way out of shame. And we'll begin by looking at Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. Because in Genesis 2.25, here's what we see. We see a world without shame. And why is it a world without shame? Here's why. Because it is a world without sin. And so what did that look like? Well, uh, Genesis 2.25 tells us. Look what it says about God's uh, first people. He created Adam and Eve. Look at verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not Ashamed. So consider it. Clothing had never even occurred to Adam and Eve before. 
The whole concept of clothing is something they'd never even thought of. They'd never consider it. Why, why? Because they had nothing to hide. They were totally innocent. And so they were naked and they were not ashamed. And so how do we go from that world that had no shame to this world, a world where everyone just seems filled with shame? Well, that leads us right into our first point, which is this. The cause of shame is sin. The cause of shame is sin. Have a look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. And we'll begin with the first step in this progression of sin that we see in the Garden of Eden, which is this, unbelief. Unbelief. Chapter 3, verse 1, here we go. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so the serpent, of course, here is Satan. Satan is in the garden with Adam and Eve, and he hates them. They are, they are God's image bearers. He hates them. He wants to kill them by tempting them to sin. And he's going to use his primary weapon against them, which is this. Lies. Lies. Have a look back at verse 1. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So here we see Satan, he's deliberately misquoting God. He's essentially saying this to Eve. Eve, is it really true that God made these thousands of trees filled with fruit? He said, you can't have any of it? And of course, that's not what God said. Let's have a look at what God actually said. Flip over to chapter 2, verse 16. We'll see what God actually said. This is God commanding Adam. Look what he says, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying... Uh, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. So he's, he's, he's commanding him, saying, you can eat from any tree you want, any tree. But, verse 17, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, Satan wants them to die, so he's going to tempt them to sin by eating from this one tree. Now, flip back to chapter 3, verse 2, and we'll see how Eve responds to Satan deliberately misquoting God. Have a look at verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So first we see Satan misquoting God, and now we see Eve, she's misquoting God as well. She sort of corrects Satan, but at the same time, she's also adding to what God actually said. God never said, don't touch the tree. He said, don't eat from the tree, or you will surely die. Now look how Satan responds. Verse 4. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So here we see Satan, he's now directly attacking Eve with a lie. He's saying to her, you will not surely die. In other words, he's saying this, he's saying, Eve, Eve, God's a liar. I know he said that you'll die if you eat from that tree, but you will not surely die. Notice the silence. Because we don't hear Eve saying anything at this point. We certainly don't hear her saying, that's not true. God's not a liar. If he said we shouldn't eat from that tree and we'll die if we do that, then that's exactly what will happen. She's not saying that, and here's why. Because seeds of unbelief are being sown into her heart, and they're starting to take root. Has God been lying to me? Is the serpent telling me the truth? Is God a liar? Maybe he is. This is what's running through her heart. It's doubt concerning the very character of God. And now because of that, Satan can now continue his attack and tempt Eve toward the next step in the progression of sin in the garden, which is this up on the screen, pride, pride. Have a look now at verse 5. Satan continues. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and 
evil. So Satan is telling Eve, Eve, here's your problem. Here's your problem. Your eyes are closed. If you eat the fruit from that tree, your eyes will be open and then you will see like God. You will have the secret knowledge of God. You will see good and evil. Eve, you can be your own God. He's tempting her toward pride. He's tempting her toward being her own God. But will she take the bait? Well, have a look at verse 6. Verse 6. Notice. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she's hooked. He's got her. She's hooked. The tree, the fruit, and that looks good to her. She wants the fruit. And notice again the progression of sin here. First there's unbelief, doubting the character of God. Maybe God's a liar, leading to pride. I will be my own God, leading to now this third step in the progression of sin in the garden, which is this, lust. Lust. Eve is lusting after this fruit. She must have it. And why? Why does she want it so much? Well, look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes. This fruit is looking so good. Why? What's the reason? Verse 6. The tree was to be desired to make one wise. Wise like who? Wise like God. Her lust for this fruit is rooted in pride. She wants to be like God. She wants to be her own God. So now she must have this fruit because it's going to make her like God. And therefore, verse 6, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Adam was right there. He was right there with her. Like a man who just stands there and watches his wife run off the edge of a cliff and does nothing about it. He was right there with her. How long had he been there for? Well, he'd been there long enough to watch his wife have a conversation with the devil. He'd been there long enough to watch her eat the fruit that God commanded them not to eat. And instead of stepping in and standing on the word of God and saying, Stop, what are you doing? We'll die if you do this. Stop. What does he do instead? He sins. He rejects the word of God. And he himself eats from the fruit that she hands to him. And in this moment, everything changes. Everything changes. They don't know it yet, but they've just unleashed upon themselves an avalanche of shame. It's coming for them. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. There's nothing they can do because they chose to believe the lies of the devil over God. Question. What do you do when the devil attacks you with his lies? Because if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then Satan attacks you with his lies. So what do you do? What's your strategy? What do you do when Satan attacks you with his lies? Well, what should we do? Well, thankfully, God tells us what we should do. First Peter chapter 5 up on the screen. Look what Peter says. He says, he says be sober-minded. Be watchful. In other words, hey, 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 church, wake up. Be on your guard. Why? Here's why. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You have an adversary. I have an adversary, the devil. He's prowling around Brampton looking for someone to devour right now. What should we do? Look what he says. Resist him. Resist him. How? How? Firm in your faith. In your faith. We resist the lies of the devil by believing the word of God. This is why it's so important for us to be storing up the word of God in our hearts. Are you doing that? This is why it's so important for us to be renewing our mind with the word of God. Are you doing that? So we can stand against the lies of the devil. So when Satan comes to us and he says, hey, 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 God's not enough for you. You need to get that thing and that thing and that thing. And then then that's the recipe for happiness. What do we do? We fight back. We, we stand on the word of God like Psalm 23 verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. If I have God, I have everything. If I have God, I have my portion. I have my inheritance. I have everything I need. A super mega abundance. Amen. Amen. Or when Satan comes to you and he says, hey, hey, 
God doesn't love you. Look at all this pain in your life. Look at all the suffering. Look at all these trials. Think God loves you. If God loved you, this wouldn't be happening. We fight back. We stand on the word of God like 1 John 4, 10. This is love. Not that we've loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you ever doubt the love of God, we just need to look to the cross. Look to the cross, see the Son of God having the wrath of God poured out upon him for our sins. He took our hell. That's how much he loves us. Or when Satan comes to you and he says, you should be terrified right now because your worst nightmare is about to happen. What do we do? We fight back. We stand on the word of God like Psalm 23 verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And if the sovereign God of the universe who spoke the universe into existence and holds everything together and has all power and who loves us more than we'd ever imagine, if he's with us, then surely he will keep his promises to provide us all the grace we need for whatever trial that he sovereignly ordains into our lives. This is how we fight against the lies of the devil, by believing the word of God, which is what Adam and Eve did not do. But it's what we must do. We must. We must. And now because they've sown sin, they're about to reap a harvest of shame and fear, which leads to our second point, which is this. The cause of shame is sin, but the effect of shame is fear. The cause of shame is sin, but the effect of shame is fear. Have a look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So just moments ago, Adam and Eve, they are, they are together, they are naked, they are not ashamed, they have nothing to hide. But in an instant, as soon as they sin, look what happens, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. As soon as they sinned, their eyes were opened to something they'd never seen before. It's this, it's, it's evil. But it's not evil that's like way over there somewhere. It's evil in them. Their eyes are open to the experience of doing evil. Their eyes are open to their new reality, which is this. There is now evil in them. Like, like if you take some food coloring and you drop a, a drop of it into a bucket of water, it hits the water and it just starts to diffuse everywhere. So sin has now splashed into their hearts and has corrupted them. And so what did that feel like? What did it feel like for them to be pure and then to be corrupted by sin? Well, verse 7 tells us. Look what it says. And they knew that they were naked. Which means this. They now feel unclean on the inside, and so they feel exposed on the outside. They feel unclean on the inside, so now they feel exposed on the outside. They feel unacceptable. They feel dirty on the inside, so all they want to do is hide themselves on the outside. And so what did they do? Well, look at verse 7. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You see what they're doing here? They have an inward problem of shame and they're trying to fix it with an outward covering. They have an inward problem of shame. They're trying to fix it with an outward covering. That's just never going to work. You can't fix an inward problem with an outward solution. If you've got engine trouble in your car, you can't fix it by painting the car. It's not going to work. And we're going to see that this isn't going to work. Have a look at verse 8. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. And why are they hiding themselves? Because the fig leaf isn't working. It's not taking care of the problem of their, of their inward shame. And this moment is so sad. This is so sad because up until this moment right here, God has been their greatest happiness God has been their greatest joy. He's been their greatest delight. He's been their greatest treasure. But now in this moment, he's their worst nightmare. 
He has become their greatest fear because in this moment, in his presence, all they feel is shame and fear because they've sinned. They've become unclean. They've become corrupted on the inside. And all they want to do is hide themselves first from one another, but then also and especially from God. But notice this. He's coming to them. He's coming to them. Fellowship between man and God has been broken, and yet he's coming to them. Why? To destroy them? Have a look at verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Of course, God knows exactly where Adam is. He's not asking what tree he's hiding behind. He's saying this, Adam, Adam, why aren't you with me? Like a child who runs away from their parent, God's saying, Adam, why aren't you right here? Why aren't you right here with me? Look at how Adam responds in verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, notice, there's no, there's no God, I ate the fruit, forgive me. There's none of that. There's no confession, there's no repentance, there's only shame. And then the result of shame, which is fear. So God now asks him two questions. Have a look at verse 11. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now this question provides Adam with the perfect opportunity to just say, yes, I did it. To just own his sin, to just confess it. But will he? Will he confess? Will he confess? Let me ask you, when the Lord comes to you and points out a very specific area of sin in your life, are you quick to confess? Are you quick to confess? Because when the Lord comes to us and he points out sin in our lives, he's calling us out of hiding. He's calling us out of the darkness. He's calling us into the light. And here's why. Because he loves us so much and because he wants us to return to him. So what should we do when the Lord comes to us and he points out a, a specific area of sin in our lives? Here's what we need to do. We must do. We must confess. Just confess. We need to confess our sins to God. 1 John 1.9, such a powerful verse, says, If we confess our sins, if, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this week was another week where every single day I had to go back to the Lord, back to my Father, and confess my sins because I, I, I'm a sinful man. I keep sinning every day. I just I keep sinning and I need to go back to my Father. And every time I do, uh, he always meets me with open arms. Every time, and embraces me, and forgives me, and cleanses me. How about you? Is there sin in your life that you need to confess to the Lord this morning? Because listen, there is no healing in hiding. And there is no cleansing without confession. There is no healing in hiding, and there is no cleansing without confession. God has come to Adam. He's pointed out his sin. What sin is God pointing to in your life? What sin is God pointing to in your life? Because there is no healing in hiding, and there is no cleansing without confession. We must come out of hiding. We must confess our sins to the Lord so we can be healed, so we can be cleansed, which is so much better than hiding from God in fear. The cause of shame is sin. The effect of shame is fear. And our third and final point is this. The death of shame is the gospel. The death of shame is the gospel. God has come to Adam and provided him with the perfect opportunity to confess. What will he do? Look how he responds. Verse 12. The man said, the woman, this isn't starting off well, the woman whom you gave to be with me, 
She gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. So instead of grabbing hold of this opportunity and just owning what he did and confessing his sin, here's what he's doing. He's trying to shift the blame, to shift the blame. Look again at verse 12. The man said, the woman whom, notice, you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. In other words, God, this is really your fault. You hadn't given me this woman, none of this would have happened. And it's her fault. If she hadn't given me this fruit, none of this would have happened. It's like a man who gets caught red-handed stealing something. And he says, yeah, I stole it, but it's not my fault I did this. It's my parents' fault. You should have seen how they raised me. And it's my wife's fault. She's mean to me all the time. That's why I did this. Shifting the blame. And instead of God striking him down right there on the spot for his irreverence, he mercifully turns now from Adam and he begins to address Eve. Look at verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. So when we see Eve doing the exact same thing, just shifting the blame, things are going from bad to worse. This hole is getting deeper and deeper and deeper for them. God begins to lay out some of the consequences for their sin. That for Adam, the ground will now be cursed. Work is going to be hard. Eve will now experience pain in childbirth. But now, God turns all his attention to Satan. Look at verse 15. He says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That word enmity there, it means hostility. It means bad blood. He says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. And it's right here in this moment with Adam and Eve at their absolute worst that God proclaims the greatest message of all time. Because it's right here in verse 15 that the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed for the very first time. It's right here in this moment where where fellowship between God and man is shattered on the ground. That God first makes known his plan to make a way back to himself through Jesus Christ. And at this very first gospel proclamation, we now see three things about Jesus Christ right here in Genesis chapter 3. Here's the first thing up on the screen. That Jesus Christ is our victory over Satan. Amen. Amen. Yes. Amen. Jesus Christ is our victory over Satan. Verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman... And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. God tells Satan, he, whoever he is, he shall bruise your head. And that word bruise there can also be translated crush. He says to Satan, he, whoever he is, he is going to crush your head. And who is he? Well, he is none other than Jesus Christ, who will crush the head of Satan at the cross. Yes, Satan will bruise his heel. Yes, Jesus Christ will suffer horrifically, horrifically on that cross. But Jesus Christ will ultimately be victorious over Satan and crush his head by dying for the sins of his people on the cross, rising from the dead, so they will have eternal life through faith in him. Amen. And now following this first gospel proclamation, we now see a second thing about Jesus Christ right here in Genesis chapter 3, and it's this. Up on the screen, Jesus Christ is our sacrifice and righteousness. He is our sacrifice and righteousness. Have a look down at verse 21. Verse 21, I love this verse so much. Here we go. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothe them. So notice first, 
God is rejecting the clothing they made for themselves. Do you see that? He's rejecting their fig leaves. Get those fig leaves out of here. Notice this. He then provides them with different clothing, clothing made from the skins of an animal. So where do these skins come from? They came from an animal. They came from an animal, which means that God himself sacrificed an animal and then covered, covered Adam and Eve with its skins. And this is the first death of an animal in the Bible. Now, why would God do this? Does he just want them to have nicer clothes? Is that what this is about? That is not what this is about. This is a picture of something much greater. This is a picture of the gospel. This is a picture of God's plan to make a way back to himself through Jesus Christ. And God sacrificing this animal here is pointing forward. It's a giant arrow pointing into the future to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for the sins of his people. But not only that. God covering Adam and Eve with these animal skins is also pointing forward. It's also an arrow into the future pointing to the reality that one day God will cover his people. He will clothe his people in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we we might become the righteousness of God. And maybe thinking, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that we would become the righteousness of God? What does it mean that God would clothe us in the, the very righteousness of Jesus Christ like he clothes Adam and Eve in animal skins? Well, to understand what that means, we first have to understand this, that after the Garden of Eden, there's just no possible way for sinful man to enter back into relationship with God on his own. After the Garden of Eden, it is impossible for sinful man to enter back into relationship with God on his own. And here's why. Because for man to enter into relationship with God, he must be perfect. And to be perfect means you can't have any sin at all, and you also have to have perfect obedience. To be perfect means you can't have any sin And you also have to have perfect obedience. So for sinful people like me, like us, that's an unfixable problem. Because all of us have sin and none of us have perfect obedience. And so what does God do? How does he solve our unfixable problem? Well, he fixes our unfixable problem with his glorious solution called the gospel. That God would send his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die on a cross and to make payment for our sin so that we could be cleansed. That we could be cleansed from our sin. But not only that. God also sent his son into the world to live the perfect life that we could never live. To live a perfect life where he kept the Ten Commandments perfectly for his whole life. That he he loved God with all his heart and all his mind and all his soul and all his strength for his entire life perfectly without fail. That he would live a perfect life where he would love his neighbor as himself perfectly at all times. That, That he would come and live this life that is one continuous stream of perfect worship. So that one day God could take that perfect record of obedience and clothe us in it like a jacket. This is what it looks like, guys. Maybe you come up and help me. And so uh, Chris and Thomas are coming up, and Chris is going to represent for us a sinner. And he's wearing a jacket here, and that jacket represents his sin. Thomas is going to represent Jesus Christ for us. And so we see Chris here, and there's nothing he can do to get rid of his sin. Nothing. There's nothing he can do to remove it. The only thing he can do is place his trust in Jesus Christ. That that Really believing with all his heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died for my sins. He rose from the grave three days later, proving that God accepted his sacrifice. The moment that Chris truly believes that, Jesus takes his sin. He takes his sin, he puts it on himself, and he goes to the cross, and he suffers, he bears the wrath of God that Chris deserves, and he makes full payment for that sin so that it is gone, it is no more, it is nailed to the cross, it is finished. But Chris is still not fit to be in relationship with God. 
because Chris does not have perfect obedience. And so here's what Jesus Christ does. He takes his perfect record of obedience and he covers Chris with it like a coat. Amen. So that God can look at Chris and say this, you are righteous. You are righteous. Amen. Thanks, guys. Can you give them a round of applause? Thanks so much for your help. Thank you. Have a look up on the screen at what the prophet Isaiah says about this. Isaiah 61, he says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. God clothes us. He clothes us in the obedience of Jesus Christ so that when God pulls out his legal file on you, kept in heaven, I just happen to have it right here, hope that's okay. Here's your legal file from heaven and, and so when God opens up your legal file, and there are two uh, columns here. There's your sin column and your obedience column. I'm just going to read your sin column. I uh, hope that's okay too. We're family, right? We can be transparent. So here's your sin column. I'm going to read it right now. Well, I'll just show it to you, okay? Here's what it says. Nothing. There's nothing there. Because all of your past sin, all of your present sin, all of your future sin, it was all placed on Jesus Christ on the cross. So let's have a look at your, your obedience. Then I'll read it to you. Here's what it says. It says, uh, Perfect. It says that you've always kept the Ten Commandments perfectly. It says that you've always loved God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength perfectly. It says that you've always loved your neighbor as yourself perfectly. Why? Because you've done that? As if, right? As if. No, not, not because you've done it, but because Jesus' perfect record of righteousness, his perfect record of obedience was stapled to your file. So God can now look at your file and say, righteous. Righteous. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so why would God do this? I mean, what's the point? Why would he cleanse us in this way? Why would he clothe us in this way? Well, here's why. So that we could be brought into relationship with him. That's the whole point. He makes us perfect so that we could be brought into relationship with him. Which is the third thing that we're going to see about Jesus Christ in Genesis chapter 3 up on the screen. That Jesus Christ is our way back to God. Jesus Christ is our way back to God. Have a look down at verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold... The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take from, notice, the tree of life and eat and live forever. Verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so often this moment, this moment where Adam and Eve, is, they're cast out of the garden, is cast in, in such a, a negative light. We think about it in such a negative way. And maybe we should. This is a sad moment, is it not? This is a sad moment. God is cast in the middle of the garden, but here's what we need to see. That this is actually a moment of amazing grace. This is also a moment of amazing grace for at least two reasons. Here's the first reason. That, that by casting them out of the garden, God is actually protecting them from eating from the tree of life. Because if they eat from the tree of life, they will be stuck in this condition forever. It's amazing grace. But here's another reason why this is amazing grace. Because the only way to the cross is out of the garden. The only way you get to the cross is by leaving the garden. God's plan of salvation, it begins as soon as they took that first step out of the garden. From that moment, everything's heading toward the cross, toward the cross, toward the cross, and here's why. Because at the cross, God's people will have their sin and their shame taken away. 
And maybe you're thinking, well, I understand how my sin is taken away, but how is my shame taken away? Well, we need to understand this, that our sin and our shame, they're connected. It's like they're, they're chained together. Wherever our sin goes, our, our shame goes as well. It's kind of like garbage and a bad smell, right? If, if the garbage is here, then the bad smell is here. If the garbage is over there, the bad smells over there. If the garbage goes outside, the bad smells outside. It's just like our sin and our shame. Wherever our sin goes, our shame for that sin, it follows it. And that means that if you are here today and you are in Jesus Christ, then all of your sin was transferred to Jesus Christ on that cross and therefore so was all your shame for that sin. We need to receive that today. You are no longer united to your sin. Therefore, you are no longer united to your shame. And here's why. Because now you are united to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Romans 6, 5 says that if we have been united with him in a death like his, then we will surely be united with him in a resurrection like his. 1 Corinthians 6, 17 tells us that through faith we've become joined to Christ, that we've become one spirit with him. And not only that, in Ephesians 1, Paul says that we've been predestined for adoption. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, he says that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So consider it, consider it. Through faith, you and I have entered into the deepest possible relationship with God. Because we've been united to God the Son, we've been adopted by God the Father, and we've been indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. We've been... We've been Amen. We've been united to God the Son. We have been adopted by God the Father, and we have been indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. And this, loved ones, is the death of shame in our lives. Because entering into relationship with God is the death of shame. And here's why. Because the ultimate big answer for shame is to be in relationship with someone who has honor. Because when you're in a relationship with someone who has honor, you share in their honor. We've all experienced this on a human level. If someone with honor comes to you and they choose to spend time with you, you feel honored. If they choose now to enter into a relationship with you, and maybe put their arm around you and walk through the city with you, you feel honored. And so let me ask you, who is the one who has the most honor? It's God. Who is the one who has all the honor. It's, it's God. It's God. And this is why the gospel is the death of shame. Because through the gospel, God has come to us. And God has entered into the deepest kind of relationship with us by uniting us to his son and adopting us as his children and indwelling us by his spirit. This is the death of shame. The death of shame is this. I'm with him. This is the death of shame. It's I'm with him. I'm united to him. I've been adopted by him. I'm indwelt by him, the one who has all the honor. This is what God has done. He has come to you. And he has honored you. He has honored you by choosing to love you. He has honored you by choosing to value you. He has honored you by choosing to cleanse you from all your sin. He has, he has honored you by choosing to clothe you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He has honored you by choosing to save you from hell. He has honored you by choosing to unite you to himself. He has come to you and honored you by, by choosing to adopt you and indwell you and, and, and enter into relationship with you in the deepest way possible. God has come to you and he has chosen to maximally honor you by choosing to enter into relationship with you in the deepest way possible. And why? Why has he chosen to honor you in this way? Here's why. So that you will honor him forever. That's why he has chosen to honor you in this way so that you will honor him forever by worshiping him and enjoying him and praising him and loving him both now, today, and for all of eternity. And so here's the question. How does this truth 
change our lives today? Well, here's what we need to see. That each of us leaving here today will choose to live our lives in one of two ways. And we'll call them the fig leaf way or the gospel way. Okay? All of us are going to have to choose as we leave here today to live either the fig leaf way or the gospel way. So let's have a look up on the screen. Here's the, here's the fig leaf way. It begins with this. Deep inward shame. And here are two reasons why we experience deep inward shame. First, because of our own sin. We sin, and when we sin, we feel unacceptable, we feel dirty, we feel unclean, we feel less than human. And so we experience shame because of our own sin. But then there's another huge reason why we experience shame. And it's because other people sin against us. And there are people in this room right now, and you have been horrifically sinned against. And because of that, you feel this sense of shame, the sense of being unacceptable because of the sins of others, which leads to this. It leads to fear. I don't want anyone to see who I really am because they'll shame me, they'll reject me. I can't let anyone see who I am, which leads to putting modern-day fig leaves on ourselves. It leads to trying to fix the, the, the inward problem of shame by putting on modern-day fig leaves, and it's never going to work. You can't fix the inward problem of shame with an outward covering. Never. You can't fix the engine of a car by painting it, and you can't fix the inward problem of shame by putting on modern-day fig leaves. And maybe you're thinking, well, like what exactly? Oh, what are you talking about, modern-day fig leaves? Well, here are two massive categories. Our appearance, the image that we try to project, and our performance. The things we do, appearance, what we look like, the image we project, trying to look cool trying to look tough, trying to look really smart, trying to look really successful, trying to look happy all the time, trying to look attractive, trying to look really super spiritual, trying to look professional, trying to look like we have it all together. We hide behind these things because we don't want people to see who we really are on the inside. But then there's also the fig leaf of our performance, the things that we do our skills, our abilities, our accomplishments, our good works, our education, our job, our social media, our perfect Facebook life. We hide behind these things because we don't want people to see who we really are on the inside. Question, what fig leaves do you hide behind so people can't see who you really are on the inside? What fig leaves are you hiding behind so people can't see who you really are on the inside? Is it trying to look cool? Trying to look tough? Trying to look smart? Trying to look successful? Trying to look really happy all the time? Trying to look attractive? Trying to look super spiritual? Trying to look professional? Trying to make it look, 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 you've got it all together. Is it your skills or your abilities or your accomplishments or your good works or your education or your job? What are the fig leaves that you're hiding behind so people can't see who you really are on the inside? Because when we hide behind fig leaves, we will inevitably do this. We will live under the judgment of man. And here's why. Because it's just a matter of time before someone comes along and says, your fig leaves are no good. Just a matter of time before someone comes along and says, your appearance, that's no good. That's not good enough. Your performance, that's no good. That's subpar. Which leads now to a triple shame. Because we already feel shame because of our sin. We feel shame because people have sinned against us. And now we feel shame because our fig leaves are no good. This is when we feel worthless and useless and like a failure. And man, I don't want to live that way to you. Who wants to live this way? I don't want to live this way. There must be another way. Well, praise the Lord, there is. We'll call it the gospel way. Okay? Gospel way. Up on the screen, here's, here's uh, where it starts. It starts with this deep inward shame. It starts in the same place. We experience shame because of our own sin. And we experience shame because of the sins of others against us. But then instead of recoiling in fear, we're going to do this. We're just going to be honest about it. 
We're going to be honest with ourselves about it. Say, hey, I experience shame, this kind of sense that I'm, I'm not good enough and, and, I, and I'm unacceptable and I feel dirty and I'm just going to be honest with myself about it. I'm going to be honest with the Lord about it. I'm going to talk to God about it. I'm going, to, I'm going to include other people in my community and talk to them about it. It's like, man, I'm just struggling a little bit here with shame. And then instead of putting on fig leaves, we're going to do this. We're going to run to the solution. We're going to run to the solution, which is the gospel. Because listen, I don't need a fig leaf to hide my sin and shame. I need a savior to take away my sin and shame. Amen? I don't need fig leaves to hide my sin and shame. I need a savior who can actually take away my sin and shame. And when we can see, when we see that we've been honored by God because he's chosen to love us and he's chosen to cleanse us of all of our sin and he's chosen to clothe us in the obedience of Jesus and he's chosen to value us and he's chosen to adopt us and he's chosen to unite us to himself and bring us into relationship with him, this is what kills deep inward shame. This is the inward solution it's being in relationship with the one who has all the honor and maybe you're here today and the biggest reason why you're feeling shame in your life is because people have sinned against you maybe you're like Jane and someone has sinned against you and and because someone has sinned against you you've been carrying around this weight of shame because of someone else's sin or maybe you're like Matthew and you're thinking, I, I think I feel so much shame because I just wear, I'm wearing all these fig leaves and people keep telling me they're no good. Or maybe you're like Casey and you're thinking, I think the reason I feel shame is because of everything I've done. Well, listen, listen, hear the gospel over your life this morning. You are not your sin. That is not your identity. You are not your sin. You are not the sins of others. That is not your identity. You are not the sins of others. You are not your appearance. You are not your performance. You're not who other people say you are. Because God has come to you. God has come to you and he's made you righteous. He has united you to himself. He has adopted you. He has indwelt you. And because of that, here's who you are. You are now someone who is in the deepest possible relationship with the one who has all the honor. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The King of Glory who has all authority. The one who shines brighter than any sun. You are united to him and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 You are united to the one who has restored for all time what was lost in the garden by making a way for us to enter back into relationship with God. The cause of shame is sin. The effect of shame is fear. The death of shame is the gospel because through the gospel we enter into a relationship with the one who has all the honor, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, what a gift it is to be able to open up your word and have it in our hands. God, so many have gone before us who have literally died so that we can have this Bible in our hands today. And we open up God's word and we see that it actually opens us up. God, you are the one who does the spiritual surgery in the heart that we all need. God, we don't want to live the fig leaf way. We don't want to hide anymore. We want to rejoice in the truth of the gospel. We want to rejoice in our Savior. Rejoice in the, in the truth that you have honored us so that we will honor you forever. And God, we do that right now in song. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.